Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Welcome back to part two of the episode of Removing Christ from Scripture. What we did last episode was we had looked at the Theocast episode by John Moffat and Justin Perdue and looked at what their arguments were with regard to removing Christ from Scripture and how that's a bad principle to do. And so I don't want to repeat everything that we did in that episode, but just as a way of encapsulating that, I'm just going to replay their intro to the episode and introduce it. So again, this is their episode that aired on April 20th, 2022 uh, from Theocast called Stop Taking Jesus Out of the Bible. And we're going to talk about hermeneutics and how should we approach scriptures in the Old Testament specifically, and should we see Jesus there? Hi, this is John, and today on Theocast, Justin and I are going to have a very pointed and lively conversation about why people find it necessary to remove Jesus from all of the scriptures. We do wholeheartedly believe that the Bible is about Jesus from verse 1 to the end of the book, and there seems to be a teaching and instructions today that would encourage one to not see Jesus in every part of Scripture. Uh, We possibly name names and give examples. It's a very lively conversation. We hope you enjoy. Stay tuned. If you'd like to help. All right. So basically what they're introducing is is the fact that they assume, and they say this explicitly in this second part of the podcast, so we're going to get to this, but what their assertion is, is that every verse of the Bible should point primarily to Christ. And as we talked about last time, and we concluded in part one, talking about how that kind of argumentation is actually very similar to what the King James Version, the KJV only advocates would would assert in comparing the different newer English translations. Many of them would say, well, look, in this verse, the KJV has Jesus in this verse, but the newer translations remove Jesus out because they are defaming the text, whatever, whatever, how, and they use that as a negative assertion saying, how dare new translations do that? But the thing to remember is that they're bypassing the entire discussion. The real discussion is, should Jesus actually be found in the text? And with the KJV English translation argument, what the whole argument is, is whatever Paul wrote, whatever Matthew wrote, that's what we want to ascertain. That's what we want to understand and apply to our lives, to our understanding and reading of scripture. So that's a that's an objective question is what did Matthew actually write? He didn't write in English. He didn't write the KJV. In fact, the KJV was based on the work by Erasmus, largely, who only had seven Greek manuscripts that he translated and collated into his Greek New Testament, but he was actually trying to do it as part of a improvement on the Latin Vulgate. But all of those manuscripts, the earliest one he had was dated to the 11th century AD. And now we have manuscripts that date to the 4th century. And, and well, even papyri that date beyond that into the 2nd century. And so 2nd and 3rd century papyri uh, versus Erasmus having, you know, these texts from the 11th century. Uh, I think in many ways we have to ask questions before the, in, the initial question as to what does the text read? We have to ask questions about methodology. And that's kind of the the whole crux of this discussion is uh, I appreciate these brothers from Theocast asking the question, but in one sense, 
they're really missing the boat because they actually have to ask questions earlier on, meaning how do we derive meaning? How do we ascertain what the text says? And they're appealing to their confessions primarily, which is what we talked about a lot in the first part of this uh, episode in the first part of this discussion of taking Jesus out of the Old Testament, they're assuming that the confessions are the interpretive grid work for scripture, but those confessions come in the 16th, 17th centuries. So what did the church, what did the Old Testament saints do with regard to interpreting scripture? That's a, that's a big part of the argument. So we're going to jump back into their discussion here, and some of this will be new and some of it will be repeat of what we've been talking about. So we're jumping back in at the 25 minute marker and this is their explanation for why they're concerned when people reject the historical categories of law, gospel, Jesus being found in every part of the text. These are their concerns. Am I in the biography of Jesus? Where am I in the story of Christ? It is safe to say that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to aim to not be punchy in a bad way, but I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say the things, right? And, and hope that people receive this well and, and that it's helpful. Right. So I'm just going to begin. Our biggest concern, as we've alluded to in the titles there, and we've already been kind of talking around it, is that when people jettison or object to these historical categories, what ends up happening is you, with the best of intentions, end up removing Christ from vast portions of the Bible. All right, so notice what he's saying there is that when you aren't operating in your hermeneutic with these assumptions that Christ is there or law gospel leading to Christ is not there, notice the words that he says, the way he frames it. He's framing the problem with an assumption, a presupposition. The presupposition is that Christ is already there. And that's why I said this is very similar to the King James only kind of argumentation because the assumption is that Jesus is there. And so if you take any other approach, you're removing Jesus there. And let me say it this way. This is the entire question. It's whether or not Jesus should be in certain texts. You can't assume that somebody is removing Jesus. First, you have to discern whether or not Jesus should actually be present in that verse. And that is the question. In fact, I would say that you actually do dishonor to the Lord when you claim that his inspired word means something that it doesn't. And that's something that we ought to think as well, is what is our methodology for when God inspires scripture, what does it mean? And if we say that scripture means something that it doesn't, then are we putting words in God's mouth minimally, or we're also twisting the things of scripture? And so that should concern us too. And I would say, even if you, and this this can be humbling, because even if you are saying something that is theologically true or accurate, but you are misinterpreting scripture, you're actually going against God's design for that scripture, and therefore you are in the wrong and in sin. So you can be right theologically, but you can be wrong and in sin with regard to biblical interpretation. That's, I think, a very poignant point. Uh, Just by way of illustration, I was thinking about this and maybe you're familiar with Josh Groban's song, You Raise Me Up. Uh, It used to be famous back in the day. And I just remember being in shock when I went to a church and heard it sung as special music. And I just remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm pretty sure that's not even a religious song. Why is this church singing it as special music? And so I went back and researched it, listened to some interviews from Josh Groban. And sure enough, he had written it about his mother. And so in one sense, is it applicable to take a song that's written about, you know, 
one's mother. This is a song Josh Groban wrote about his mother and he sang it to her or a song that you could sing to your girlfriend and apply it to Jesus and say, oh, this is all about Jesus. Well, I think most people would be against that, I think. Um, but why is it that we can we can totally reverse methodologies and say it doesn't matter what this originally meant in the Old Testament, we can make it about Jesus here. It doesn't matter what it originally meant, we make it about Jesus. And you see there's a problem there. Is there some sort of esoterical methodology for how we discern meaning? That's not how God communicates. When God communicates, he speaks in human terms through a human prophet or apostle. And when he does so, he does so to be understood. And so if we're rejecting normal means of communication, of course we can find Jesus in every verse, but we can't do that. There's no license to do that. In other words, I I would backtrack to our part one of this episode and say, what is our justification for saying every verse must do this? And of course, the verses that they mentioned in part one, where every promise in Jesus is yes and amen. Well, again, that verse in and of itself does not mean every verse points to Jesus, right? So I think this is pretty uh, a pretty significant part of the debate. The whole question is whether or not Jesus should be found in certain texts. That That is the debate. Okay, uh, now we're jumping in at 26.55 uh, on another issue here. I'll put a couple seconds ahead of that. Read them into it or shouldn't force it in there or whatever the argument is. If the argument is it's not in there, then you shouldn't say it. Okay, reason with me for a minute. The book of Esther, I'm just going to pick some low-hanging fruit here. The book of (laughs) Esther, famously, the name of God is not in it. So my question to these people who would object to a law gospel distinction or Christ in all scripture because, oh, it's not in the text. It's like, okay, well, are you going to talk about God when you preach through Esther? Are you going to, are you going to read Esther and, and, and see God underneath and behind it all? And the answer is like, well, yeah, of course we're going to see God. Of course we're going to preach God because God is underneath and behind everything. Exactly. Genesis 37 and following, the life of Oops, Joseph, the Lord's name is hardly at all mentioned. Mm-hmm. Are we going to preach God? Are we going to read God when we read about Joseph? Well, of course we will, brother, because God is behind and underneath everything. Exactly. Okay, so now notice what they're doing. They're actually changing the argument here a little bit. And it's it, th- these are examples that they're giving here. They give the example of Esther. They give the example of the story of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. And they're, they're changing kind of the goalposts here a little bit because uh, the argument that they're saying is that Jesus should be in every verse. And now they're using examples of what it looks like to remove Christ. But what they're, what they're saying is, if you take this standard, uh, Esther doesn't mention the name of God at all. And that's a pretty unique thing in the Old Testament, obviously. And there's probably a reason for that, which we can talk about. But but their argument would be that you can't talk uh, about God if, it, if the text doesn't mention it then according to that standard. But that's not at all what we're actually saying. Um, and this isn't this isn't accurate reasoning. What what I would be saying and I'm sure many others would agree with me on this, is that just because a text doesn't mention something doesn't mean you can't talk about it. It, the, The real question is authorial intent. What does the author wish to communicate by what he is saying? And obviously, Esther is communicating something about God and his protection over the people of Israel, right? And so there are by the way, there are actually amazing parallels between Esther and the story of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. He gives both of those examples saying how it'd be inconsistent to talk about God uh, involved in the story because he's not mentioned. But I would say this, in the context of 
the ancient Israelite existence, the number one thing that you are just essentially aware of would be the Abrahamic covenant. And that is the foundation backdrop, especially of the Joseph narrative in Genesis 37 to 50, and especially of the Esther narrative. And in fact, Esther is replete with examples, I would argue, where the people are in exile because of sin. And as Jeremiah says, as Zechariah Haggai talk about, even when in exile, uh, the people are not repenting. And so, the, the question is, well, what's God going to do with his people Israel, even though they are not repenting, even though they are in sin? And I would argue, and there's some who would disagree with me, obviously, but I would argue that Esther and Mordecai are not necessarily paragons of virtue themselves. I think that they have some problems that they're going through. For example, Esther herself doesn't even observe the Sabbath. She's trying to hide the fact that she's Jewish. So that doesn't seem to be appropriate in accordance with Jewish law. But that's the whole point, is that Esther isn't a about uh, some some godly individual who overcomes this opposition to the Jewish community, the book of Esther is actually about God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant, preserving his people, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And so that's that's very clear. That's the authorial intent, zeroing in on the people of Israel uh, in the midst of exile, showing how God is still preserving and taking care of them. And that's what, what I would argue the, the literary uh, authorial intent of Esther is to is to keep the name of God out of the book of Esther to show that the hidden providence of God continues to work for the people of Israel. I mean, the reason God's name is there is actually an intentional ploy. I mean, you can't read the Old Testament without saying something is weird about Esther, something is off. And so most Old Testament scholars would uh, argue for this intentionality of keeping the name of God out of the book of Esther in order to communicate a point. So, so the idea here isn't that just because a word isn't found in the text, that's such a simplistic way of arguing. And no, I don't think anybody ever argues that way. It always goes back to what is the authorial intent. And the story of Joseph is very similar too, because I know that a lot of people actually would want to take the story of Joseph, and this comes partly from the Reformed tradition of allegorization and typology, is they would want to say, well, look, Joseph is a type of Christ. In other words, he saves the people of Israel by uh, planning for a famine, and so Jesus also saves us from our sins. Look at that connection. So are you going to say anytime somebody saves anyone else in the Old Testament, that's a type of Christ? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a very, very low standard. Um, and I don't think that's what's going on with Joseph either because he's got some major problems as well. He's, he's kind of a hot shot. He is not a godly individual with regard to his brothers. And he also is lying to his brothers or he's telling the truth, saying that he uses the goblet, that cup, uh, as a way to practice divination. So there are some major problems with Joseph. And there's even been some dissertations written about these, these major questions in Joseph's character. So I don't think he's a type of Christ at all. So how do we find Christ in the Old Testament? I don't think, I don't think we're looking for Christ in the story of Joseph. But if you look at the story of Genesis and you look at how Genesis is, is portraying the Abrahamic covenant, once Ab- the Abrahamic covenant comes into play in Genesis 12, now you have the the three themes of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing, and all of those are being played out. And so the story of Joseph is actually a microcosm of the Abrahamic covenant, 
where you have God providing for his people. And when the Egyptians bless Joseph and his family, the Egyptians are also blessed, which is in accordance with Genesis 12, 3. um, Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. That's what's been showing up in Genesis all over. And this is really a microcosm of that reality. So in, in one sense, just arguing that just because a word doesn't show up uh, means means nothing. What we're talking about is authorial intent. Why did the author include this narrative? What, in studying the vocabulary and studying the thematic connections, what is the purpose of this narrative? And as you answer those questions, you come away with such a beautiful uh, framework of scripture as as the stories go together and illustrate these these magnificent truths. So, you know, when he says that these are, these are, he said these are examples are low hanging fruit, meaning that they should be the easiest to show that, that the position of removing Christ is ridiculous. I really think it just demonstrates the fact that I don't, I'm not sure they really understand the position they're arguing against because nobody would say just because a word isn't found there, we shouldn't use that. We're talking about authorial intent. In other words, when Moses wrote something, when Joshua wrote something, when Isaiah wrote something, what did he mean? That's the question we're asking. It always goes back to authorial intent. In fact, I, I personally try to avoid just saying um, literal, like what's the literal meaning? I usually um, try to ask the question, what did the author mean when he wrote this? That's that's the question to be asking. And I think that that's, that's an important uh, aspect of this discussion. Uh, that's what we want to be asking. All right, moving on to the next uh, section here. They use Proverbs as an example as well. They, we divided it up. There are these topics from Proverbs that we're talking about. And we're trying to do this in a way that's Christ-centered. That's over here. Today, I was assigned with speaking on riches from Proverbs. And I had a number of verses that I ended up reading, you know, just to give the, give the kids an understanding of, under some headers, here's kind of how Proverbs talks about riches and poverty and whatever. My question to a Christian person or a Christian preacher who's going to speak about riches from Proverbs, you going to talk about God? Because his name ain't in it. You're going to talk about the good news? You're going to talk about the gospel? Because it ain't there. Or are you just going to literally say things about riches and poverty that any reasonable secular person would agree with, that every Muslim is going to agree with, and every Jew on this planet is going to agree with? Is that what you're going to do and call it Christian? That's right. I don't think so. That's right. You're going to say things about the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're going to say things about Jesus and the gospel. Why would you do that? Because you understand that underneath Everything that Proverbs is revealing is the God who is speaking through the scriptures and the God who planned to redeem sinners through the person and work of God, the son who took on flesh, whose name is Jesus. And that's what we should. Okay. So now I just want to stop there and make a couple comments. So again, the same comment could be made just because the name of God isn't mentioned. You, that doesn't mean you don't interpret it within a framework. Obviously the original audience of Solomon is going to be interpreting Proverbs in light of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, right? And in fact, um, it's it's actually a, a pretty heavy discussion in scholarly Old Testament literature how the book of Proverbs is connected to the Mosaic covenant and how it, these aren't these aren't just blank promises; they're actually wisdom assertions which are made in light of the promises that God has given through the Mosaic covenant. And so we need to, we need to think about these things contextually. That doesn't mean that we ignore God because it would be impossible to interpret Proverbs from a Mosaic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, uh, thematic process without talking about those things. That, that's not what we would argue at all. But I would also add something else here that what do you do with the ancient Near Eastern Egyptian wisdom literature that that matches proverbial sayings? So in other words, if you were studying the Egyptian 
wisdom literature, which I don't know if uh, not very many people probably would. But if you did and you looked at some of the Egyptian wisdom literature, you would find some, you know, almost verbatim parallels in the proverbial wisdom literature, right? So what do you do then? Is the Are the Egyptians writing to point to Christ? You understand what I'm saying? Is, is that if you take the standard for Proverbs, why wouldn't it apply to other uh, Egyptian wisdom literature? Or or why wouldn't the Hittite law code uh, point to Christ if, if that's our standard, right? If, if that's how, if everything's going to point to Christ. Now, of course, that makes no sense. They would never argue that way. But I'm just saying, what would be the difference qualitatively? If the Egyptian wisdom literature says one thing and Proverbs says the exact same thing, why? And I think if I remember correctly, we've actually done a episode in the past. It's got, it has to have been over a year ago where we talked about wisdom literature and, and shown some of the comparisons between the Egyptian wisdom literature and the proverbial wisdom literature. But in that framework, how do you account for the fact that there's similarities? Well, I think one of the things that we need to account for is that God in his common grace allows even non-believers to be wise, Right. And so the key point here is not that uh, we wouldn't talk about God or anything like that, but we want to understand things in their context and we apply it to our context then. That's, and the key point here, that means we, it's not as if we, we have a aversion to talking about Jesus or to talking about the new covenant. In fact, that's a key component of teaching and preaching in the new covenant is that we talk about what life was like under the old covenant and what the application would mean to those in the new covenant, because things are not the exact same. And the same principle would be talking about the law of Moses. You read the law of Moses. You don't say, well, law of Moses said, uh, build a fence around the roof of your house. Therefore you must build a fence around the roof of your house. No, that's not how we derive application. We understand that we are in the new covenant. And so we derive different application from that. We can learn principles and applications to be sure, but we're not going to say you, everyone who does not have a fence around their roof is in sin. If you say that, I believe you are wrong and you're, you're interpreting scripture incorrectly. So, so it is actually a part of the biblical teacher in the new covenant to interpret something within the framework of its original context within the Mosaic covenant, and then apply it in the new covenant setting. So, so we're not saying that you can't talk about how Jesus has impacted our lives and how, how we understand things in light of the new covenant. That's nobody would argue against that. I think that's a helpful connection to make because we're always supposed to be thinking about how does, how does Jesus change things and how do we, how do we think in, in terms of that? But what I would be saying, and it seems like they're trying to argue for, is that that doesn't mean you find Jesus in every, you know, verse. Um, but I think in places like the law, particularly, it's really important to talk about how the new covenant changes things with regard to the law. Good do. And so I'm just trying to point out the irony and the inconsistency of this argument. Well, if it's not in the text, you shouldn't talk about it. It's like, well, all right, then there are a lot of sermons. There are a lot of passages where you should never talk about God because he's not there verbatim. He's not on the page. And there are plenty of sermons. You, you talk a lot about our obedience and our sincerity. Well, that's not on the page either. That's right. And you're talking about that. And that's apparently all okay. But then as soon as we say we need to preach Christ and we need to preach law and gospel, you jump off the rooftops and scream that's poor hermeneutics and leads to bad preaching. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So obviously the assumption there is that, they, again, they're using the confessional standards of, of Christ, law, gospel, and and assuming that those should be found in every passage. Uh, I think that that's different, qualitatively different from trying to interpret things from a new covenant uh, perspective. I think that that is appropriate, but it, it's it's important not to put the cart before the horse, as as it were. And we want to we want to interpret something in its own context and and work through that. And sometimes uh, the Old Testament context is completely appropriate, and there's nothing that changes in the New Testament context. I would say, for example, prophecies concerning Israel. I would say that those are uh, understood within the Old Covenant Old Testament framework, and that those are not abrogated in the New Testament. The New Testament nowhere says, "Well, look, this is different in the New Testament" or anything like that. And so what would be the point? Uh, I actually do know some covenant theologians would actually jump off from Old Testament prophecies and say, and say, well, now this doesn't apply to the nation of Israel anymore. It has been changed because of the New Testament. And there's, there's an example where I think that would be incorrect. Uh, and I think that, that that would be an example of, of going a little too far as far as trying to interpret, reinterpret the Old Testament with the New Testament, which I think is bad hermeneutic methodology as well. All right, now we're going to talk a little bit about their assessment of allegorical interpretation. And I think that they're a little off on this, but I think it's helpful for to understand their, their viewpoint on this. When I'm thinking about this, we had mentioned this earlier, there was a hermeneutic early on in during the early um, periods of interpretation in church history where the men, faithful, godly men, were trying to understand scriptures and they were excited to see Christ in scriptures. And so they would allegorize the text mm-hmm. in such a way where they were making conclusions about Jesus that seemed a little far stretched. In other words, yeah, I don't, for sure. yeah, it's like, well, I'm not sure that's the original intentions of the author or of the text in general. And so they would make conclusions about Jesus from the Old Testament that I would say those who criticized them had fair criticisms. Absolutely. Right. Well, allegorizing the text has been um, uh, an accusation against the hermeneutic of the Reformation, a hermeneutic right. that Justin and I hold to, that we are not taking the text literal, that we're allegorizing it. We're, we're putting Jesus into the text where it should not be. And yeah. that is not the truth. We do not allegorize the text. We're not trying to make uh, applications from the text that do not fit with the whole arching story. The whole arching story... Okay, now notice the qualification there. Now notice when they're when they're talking about allegorization... In order to defend against allegorization, notice how he appealed to authorial intent, right? Saying, well, I'm not sure that this matches with the authorial intent. Well, yeah, that's the point. That's the whole point of the discussion. But then that is often jettisoned uh, whenever it's inconvenient, right? And so that's that's the issue. Now, what I think is funny about this is how how he defines allegory is he says that we are not doing allegory because we are interpreting scripture in line with the whole overarching story okay that's how he defines allegory but that's not uh that's not an actual definition of allegory uh, in other words what he's what he's arguing is that we are okay because we are making applications of the text uh that that are correct within the overarching story but no, and I want to show show a definition or or an example, I should say, of everybody agrees that this is allegory. But notice uh, the application is is fine; it's correct. It, it, in other words, there is a soundness to this example. And the example I'm going to give is from Origen, who is often viewed as you know probably the father of allegory in the early church history. So his name is Origen. And we could identify him as the origin of allegory. He wasn't really the origin, but the uh, I just wanted to say that. And 
he, he's the most prominent uh, advocate of this during during his lifetime. And he wrote on the Gospel of John, and he wrote a very interesting allegory uh, with regard to the donkey and the foal. So you remember the story when Jesus, before the night he was betrayed, the disciples are preparing for the Passover, and Jesus says to go find a donkey for him to ride into Jerusalem. And now, this is uh, a quote from Origen about the identification of the donkey and the foal. So this is his quote, quote, if the Donkey and the foal are the old and new scriptures on which the word of God rides. It is easy to see how after the word appeared to them, they are sent back and do not wait after the word has entered Jerusalem among those who have cast out all thoughts of selling and buying. I consider too that it is not without significance that the place where the donkey was found tied and the foal was a village and a village without name. For, in comparison with the great world in heaven, the whole earth is a village where the donkey is found tied and the colt, and it is simply called the village without any other designation being added to it. So, in other words, what he's saying, he's reading this gospel narrative about, you know, Jesus and Jesus' interaction with the donkey and the foal, and he's saying the donkey and the foal uh, are, are, even if I give him the most gracious interpretation, I would say, I would say they are illustrations of the Old and New Testaments. So the donkey is the Old Testament, the foal is the New Testament, and the word of God is is coming to bear. Um, in So the Logos, Christ, is coming upon in the Old and New Testaments. Well, isn't that biblically accurate? And, and those in the Reformed community would have to agree with that. Because if every verse is about Christ, of course, the Old and the New Testaments are references to Christ. And also, uh, the village, which has no name, is or could be tr- uh, truly identified with the fact that the world is the is the place where where these truths re- reside. The the foal and the donkey are here for the world's consumption. The Old and New Testament were given to the world, and they can be uh, appropriately applied. So those are theologically true statements. Is that what Matthew had in mind when he wrote about this? Is that what the gospel authors had in mind when they wrote about Jesus riding on the donkey? Is, is that, that's why we go to authorial intent. Now, of course, I, I'm very confident that, uh, the brothers here on Theocast would not agree with Origen's interpretation, but my pushback on that is what standard are you using? Because according to the standard that you've laid out in the confession, well, they, this is dealing with Christ and it, it does relate to old and new testaments that could even be related to the old and new covenant. So this fits with the confessional framework. So why won't you allow this interpretation? And I think the answer, which hopefully they would give, and I would second is that's not in line with what the author meant when he wrote that. And so it goes back, right? This is where everything needs to happen is we need to talk about what did the author mean when he wrote a section of scripture. So on this on this discussion of allegory, I know they're saying we, we don't do allegory. But my pushback is if you are if you are saying that the text signifies something, which it doesn't, then that would be allegory. Now they go on to talk about how the reformers pushed back against this. They pushed back against the uh, the Reformation um, idea. In fact, I'll just play what they say just so we don't uh, miss that. Of the Bible is redemption. It's God redeeming sinners. And so our, our application should fit inside of that. Uh, and I think it's fair that if any part of the text we can ask ourselves, where are we 
in light of the redemption of sinners. And what should be our response to that as far as faith in Christ? Uh, Two probably main sources that I want to reach to right now that are new. So these are... I guess they had already said it. I forgot they mentioned it earlier in that quote um, because I was thinking about something else. But what I wanted to say about that is is, uh, they mentioned that uh, the reformers pushed back against the allegorical hermeneutic. That's actually true. But there was still there was still leftover hangover from the allegorical interpretation. In fact, I I wrote a couple articles on Calvin and the original languages and how how adamant Calvin was against the allegorical hermeneutic. But Calvin was was fighting a battle in which he was the minority. So he was fighting against the allegorical hermeneutic even during the Reformation. So it's not as if, uh, you know, he was the majority opinion or something like that. He was fighting against that. But uh, as there's a chapter in the book called Christ's Prophetic Plans, which is edited by MacArthur and Mayhew, and they actually talk about how Calvin was inconsistent in his application or his fight against the allegorical hermeneutic, because he would often use allegory with regard to Old Testament texts. And so that's where somebody like myself would come and say, you know, we are always reforming. The reformers did a good job of starting starting the train, as it were, to, to renew this interest in scripture back to the sources. Ad fontes was the cry of the Reformation. We need to go back to the sources, interpret them in their original languages, in their original context, but they weren't perfect. And so there's there's good documentation about how Calvin and other reformers did speak against allegory, but there was still leftover leftover allegorization that they utilized, and I think some of that remains to this day in the in the covenant theology. And so we need to be aware of that uh, idea. Now they're going to introduce two arguments uh, with, or, or I should say, two articles: one by MacArthur, one by Chow. We're not going to Abner Chow, uh, both from Masters, and we're just going to play uh, the intro to this to talk about their discussion of of what their viewpoint is with regard to this. These aren't old; these are new. They're still on their websites. We'll put the links in the. Um in our show notes. One of them is from a very well-known expository seminary. Uh, most of you who've listened to this podcast probably know this name, John MacArthur Seminary, the Master's Seminary. But one of the professors at the Master's College wrote for the seminary an article. Uh, his name is Abner Chow. And in this article, uh, the title of it is, Is Christ in Every Verse? To which we would say, if you're going to say from an allegorical stance, then no, we were going to agree with you that Jesus isn't meant to be seen as far as like in every word that is there as far as um, it's about specifically his personage. You know what I'm saying, Justin? Mm-hmm. I do. But that does not say that Jesus isn't the point of every verse, um, in which we would make. All right. So notice the distinction there that they're making is is that they're taking it back saying, okay, yeah, allegory, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. And we would never say that Jesus is the point of every word. But Jesus is the point of every verse. So is that is that a distinction without a difference? It kind of seems like it, right? Because what they're saying is that we would not say that through allegory, Jesus is the point of every verse, but he is the point of every verse, right? So it's I, I'm not sure how how you can you can do that, right? Because it's it's very difficult to say that, to defend that understanding authorial intent and still come away um, without using allegory to make that happen, right? Make that argument for sure. And you can go and read the argument, but the conclusion that he makes um, in this particular um, statement and and what he's arguing for, I think he's fighting against an allegorical, allegorical interpretation of scripture to which I would say that interpretation hasn't existed for a very, very long time. And especially the patristic era, really, right? Especially during, 
Okay, so notice, uh, and that's the quote I was looking for originally. I forgot it was a little later, apparently. Um, such is life. And what they're saying, though, and, and I think they go on to clarify a little bit. They said allegorical interpretation hasn't existed since the patristic era, but I think later on they acknowledge that Calvin was writing against it. So I uh, I understand that, that they don't think that this was a long gone, bygone era from the patristic era. I, at least I, I'm assuming they don't, they don't understand that. And allegorical interpretation is still prevalent today. I told you I sat through a sermon growing up where the scarlet cord hanging out of the window of Rahab's apartment was signifying the blood of Christ, right? Is that what the original author meant when he was writing the story of uh, Joshua and the destruction of the city of Jericho. Well, of course not. And so we understand that. Uh, and so allegory does still exist today. And I think that if you, if you try, you know, I, I and that, that's the problem though, is that nobody, everyone knows allegory is bad. So nobody wants to be accused of, of committing allegory, but I would just say that, um, allegory would be, uh, a legitimate accusation when you are going outside of the bounds of authorial intent, Right. So that, that would be something that we need to think through with regard to the assertions that are made. All right, skipping ahead. Now we are, I forgot to give the timestamps earlier, but this is at 3408. Um, we're just talking about uh, the assertion that you can't interpret scripture uh, in its immediate context alone. Okay. Say that again. That the immediate context has to drive the final interpretation. Sure. Which we would agree. But that's a part. It's not the whole part of interpreting. What's right. the whole part? Yeah. So you've got to interpret scripture on various horizons, right? right? You need to look at the immediate context. Absolutely. You didn't need to look at the text in light of the epic of redemptive history you find yourself in. And then finally, you need to look at the text in light of the whole canon and what we would contend, right. Christ and the apostles, right? They're very clear about what the point of the whole Bible is. If you're going to understand any part of scripture, you must understand it in light of the whole. If you divorce it from Jesus, and if you divorce it from God's plan of redemption from before the foundations of the world accomplished through Christ, you are prone to make errors with it. That's right. what we're concerned. Okay, so now notice what he's saying is that, in other words, if you if you interpret something in its immediate context without uh, assuming that Jesus is a part of this, without the redemptive uh, historical context, you are going to make errors with the passage of Scripture. Uh, and I'm not against using a, a, a biblical theological approach to, to help understand theology. But remember, this always goes back to presuppositions, right? And this goes back to part one. What we talked about is what did scripture mean before the completion of the canon, right? So if, if you're studying an Old Testament passage and you say, we have to read this in light of the whole canon, well, what about the readers that Moses wrote the Pentateuch for, right? They're, they're receiving the Pentateuch around 1400 BC and they're reading that the canon is not going to be completed for another 1500 years. So does everyone who reads the Pentateuch derive no benefit or secondary benefit from reading that since they are prone to make errors? Uh, that's, that's difficult. Uh, that's, that's very difficult. I think again, when we understand how God communicates, he communicates with authority and clarity. Remember, we're dealing with the clarity of scripture as well as a theological presupposition where God is going to communicate something. He's going to communicate it to be understood. And so when we assess this, I would argue that our contention is God's able to communicate effectively. We model that ability, that communicative ability, because we're made in his image, right? And so 
when when I'm hearing them here and and they're saying, listen, you you can't just stop with the immediate context of a passage. Well, in principle, I agree because I'm a big fan of biblical theology and progressive revelation and seeing connections. I think that's a lot of fun, and I think there's so much helpfulness to that. But when you're talking about the concept of meaning, the concept of meaning is slightly different than biblical theology, right? What is the meaning of the text? Well, that is derived from the authorial intent, right? So you take that meaning, then you can connect the dots. You can do biblical theology where you say, well, this is something, uh, you know, take, for example, they're going to talk later on about the, the Garden of Eden. You know, you could take the Garden of Eden and then you could develop those themes as they're explained in scripture with the concept of the temple, with the concept of the new heavens, new earth. All of those things are, are beautiful and can be done through biblical theology, but that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that I think they're saying where you can't actually derive meaning from the discussion of the Garden of Eden alone uh, from authorial intent, from the context of Genesis, etc. I think there's plenty to be derived from uh, in, in assessing that. Certainly, when we're, when we're talking about the biblical theological connections, we should connect them to the later revelation, the progressive revelation. But we also don't want to fall prey to this idea where you you can't derive meaning uh, apart from apart from later revelation because then what are you going to do with the old testament saints i think that's a huge problem okay now here's here's uh the uh, defense their defense against the the assertion that they are advocating allegorization okay this is 3804 and I want to be clear that we're not advocating for some kind of weird hokey allegorizing of the passage where we like see Christ in every rock no, or in every no, no. chariot or like, you know, like, oh, well, let's examine the pieces that are on the Ark of the Covenant and talk about how that relates to Christ. Like, that's not at all what we're saying. No. But for example, just two or three high level ones. The script, the New Testament is very clear that the tabernacle and the temple were all appointed to Christ. And the fact that God tabernacled among us, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And then we see some fulfillment of, of the temple and the tabernacle in the church, and then finally we're going to dwell with God forever. All right, so in, in view of that, whenever we're thinking about the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, we would be remiss to not talk about it and preach it and understand it. And with all of that in view, that the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple is Christ, That's and right. then the church and then the new heavens and the new earth where God will dwell with us and we'll see Christ as he all right, so I, I do want to just stop and say, you know, I actually don't have any problem with this. Uh, the way he describes it isn't bad. I I know uh, some non-covenant theologians, myself included, w- would um, would agree with the, what they're saying in general. In fact, non-covenant theologians might even use the same language as them. But I would probably be a little more exact and try to specify things saying that the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, are theological patterns which train us to think correctly. And later on, when Christ comes, you know, that paradigm fits perfectly. It fits like a glove, right? But I, I know I'll, in it's it's usually the 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 foregoing thought in in common Christian culture to say things like this points to something or this this uh, this is a uh, this is a foretelling or a foreshadowing. Uh, I'm in some senses I'm okay with that language, but but I don't think uh, it's meant to be a prediction per se. So in other words, when somebody was looking at the tabernacle. Uh, did they always think about Christ uh, every time? Did they think about, in the Old Testament, they wouldn't have even thought about Jesus because he hadn't existed yet. But would they have thought about the Christ every time that they 
uh, took down the tabernacle and set up the tabernacle. I'm, I'm not convinced that's the case, right? I don't, I don't think so. But what I would argue is that it's, it, it fits perfectly in biblical theology for John in John 1 to say that Jesus himself came and the verb he uses there in John 1 is he tabernacled among us. So in other words, you take the Old Testament categories of the presence of God dwelling with the people of God in the tabernacle and temple. And then you take Jesus and say, now, just so you know, this, this one, this, the Messiah, the Christ is essentially fulfilling this concept, which you know, which you, you, you experience day in, day out. This one encapsulates that. And so I think that that's fine. That's, that's good to make that connection because the New Testament actually makes that connection. And theologically, it makes sense since Christ himself is God's presence with humanity, right? And that's what the tabernacle was. So again, there's there's no debate about this, but really I, I think the examples that I would like to see them talk about are things like uh, narratives which don't have any clear connection to Christ. For example, David and Goliath, right? I've, you know, I've heard David and Goliath preached in so many different ways. Uh, what is David and Goliath about? Is, is David a type of Christ and he, and he kills Goliath because that is dealing death blow to the serpent? Uh, what about Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50? He already talked about that. Is Joseph a type of Christ? I would like to see a discussion of those kinds of examples about how you get Christ from those passages. Because like I said, I think it's much, much better to see those in light of the covenants that God has made or in David and Goliath scenario, the, you know, it's, it's funny because the story of David and Goliath is so well known, but it's actually a foil of, of Saul and it's setting up for the King, um, and how the Davidic covenant is going to be on display. So all those themes are really important. And yes, ultimately the Davidic covenant does, uh, relate to Christ. So you could connect that, but you, it it relies completely on biblical theology, understanding how those things uh, relate. And so I would argue that, you know, the tabernacle, things like that, those are things that can be, can be uh, connected uh, quite easily uh, through biblical theology. And I think in the new covenant setting, we should do those things, but I think there are other examples, narratives, uh, which could, which could be more, powerfully explained. In other words, let's, let's talk about passages that we would actually disagree on. And two more of the examples they give, they give the Passover and the sacrificial system. I think sacrificial system is a better uh, illustration of how there might be differences. So let's, let's check that out. Yes. That's one. Another one. Um, The Passover. The Passover or the, or the day of atonement. That's right. The sacrificial system in general, let's just say that, right? Well, again, the apostles, the New Testament are very, is very clear that the sacrificial system and even these special feasts and days were all about Christ. So whenever we go to study those or preach those in the Old Testament, we would be wrong as Christians to not do so in light of Christ. Okay, so now a couple of things there. So they make a couple of assertions that the, the New Testament apostles say that the sacrificial, sacrificial system was all about Christ. Well, where does it say that? Like, uh, that, that, that's an assertion, but the, but the Bible doesn't actually say that. The New Testament doesn't say that. They, the New Testament does make, uh, claims and assertions. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Absolutely. But a lot of people kind of, and this is, 
you know, I, I deal with this all the time. Being an Old Testament professor is a lot of times people don't even understand the Old Testament. Uh, and that's why, uh, well, let's put it this way. This approach is much easier than actually taking account for the details of the Old Testament because the sacrificial system is pretty complicated. It's complex. It's nuanced. Uh, many of the sacrifices don't have anything to do with sin. A lot of people are shocked by that. Uh, but there's, there is a lot to be learned through the sacrificial system. And many of the sacrifices, well, the funny thing is some of the sacrifices are even named that way. You, you've heard, uh, as you read through the Old Testament, hopefully if you didn't fall asleep during Leviticus, uh, there is such a thing as a free will offering. Have you heard of that? Free will offering? Well, the name itself kind of uh, insinuates something, right? That this is a free will offering. In other words, it has nothing to do with sin. It is just a way to worship God and say, Lord, I, I love you. I thank you for what you've done. And I'm going to give this to you. And I'm going to partake uh, in eating this as as just thanks, thankfulness to you for who you are, what you've done in my life, like the, the, the blessings that you've poured out, etc. And so there is a complexity to the sacrificial system uh, where, yes, there is the sin offering, the guilt offering. Those do relate with sin and, and the forgiveness of sins. But there are sacrifices and offerings which, which would be done out of worship and reverence, not out of a need to have sins forgiven, right? So there's, there's something that's, that's incorrect to say that every part of the sacrificial system is exactly the same and it's all subsumed in Christ, right? And part of this, I mean, let's just go ahead and say this too, is that if if Christ's sacrifice on the cross immediately wiped out any need for for sacrifices, offerings, etc., why was Paul uh, involved in making vow offerings and sacrifices at the temple through that, right? So he, that, that, you know, a lot of people don't think about that, but there is a complexity involved where even after the death and resurrection of Christ, many of the Christians in the early church were still participating in that sacrificial system. Now, some were doing it incorrectly, right? As the author of Hebrews points out, there, there were many uh, that he was zeroing in on who were tempted to go back to the old covenant completely and to say, like, you know, cast their lot in with, with that. Uh, and so the author of Hebrews argues strongly against that. But at the same time, there were Christians, as we have plenty of biblical evidence, who did uh, participate in the vow offerings and things like that. So it is incorrect to say just on a superficial level that Christ, you know, um, you know, is the summation of the entire sacrificial system. Well, you know, it's, oh, it's, you know, am I going to say like, it, you know, Christ, you need to, you need to really minimize Christ's involvement in the sacrificial system? Of course not, because he is the pinnacle of the sacrificial system. The Day of Atonement is the pinnacle of the entire system. And of course, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that. So I think it's 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 good to make these connections, but I think uh, we need to do a better job. And so that's where I would say the sacrificial system requires some complexity in thinking through it because it's it, it would be incorrect to just say that every sacrifice was the same and it all relates to Christ the same, etc. Uh, they also say all the feast festivals relate to Christ as well. Well, one of the things uh, that is interesting in Zechariah 14, Zechariah 14 says, in the future, during the kingdom of God, during the kingdom of God, the nations, Egypt is specifically mentioned, are going to come up to Jerusalem and participate in the Feast of Booths, right? So they are going to, and if they don't, then God's going to send a plague upon them. Now, what you have to do with that text 
is you either have to say, okay, there's going to come a future time where the Feast of Booths will be observed. Or you have to allegorize it and you say, well, look, this can't be talking about a real Feast of Booths. Maybe it's just talking about Christ. Maybe the Feast of Booths is just a reference to Christ. Well, guess what? Now you're back to allegorization, right? So when you're, when you're talking about this, if it, the author in Zechariah 14, when he's talking about this, he expected a real kingdom where there would be nations celebrating the, the feast of booze, etc. And so we need to, we need to be more careful with this, right? There, there's more, it's easy just to say, yeah, Christ is everything. Boom. But is that true? Is that correct? Now, obviously, Christ is the culmination of everything and the centerpiece to it all. But I think it, it's incorrect to just say, you know, Christ is everything. Nothing matters anymore. I think, I think you know, the apostles would be very disappointed in our exegesis if we, if we uh, did it that way. All right, here's, here's another example that they give with the Edenic imagery and the tabernacle temple. Another example. Take the angels in Genesis 3 who are there to guard the way back to the tree of life. Then fast forward to the tabernacle and temple where there's a curtain that separates the Holy of Holies where God's presence uniquely dwells from everything around it with a curtain. And what's on the curtain? Angels with flaming swords, right? That's a connection to the garden. Well, what happens when Jesus dies? You know, the curtain of that curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, indicating what? That all of this, the separation between God and man because man had broken the covenant of works. All of that alienation has now been rectified. Everything has now been made right through what Jesus came to do. So in other words, whenever we see this idea of the, you know, the angels in Genesis 3, the curtain you know, in the tabernacle or the temple and separation and alienation from God and all that sin has brought, we should be seeing that in light of Christ and his person and his work. And he came to make that right. He came. All right. So I, again, I, I would say things a little differently, but overall, I'm not opposed to making these connections. I think that the way you make the connection is different though. See what they're doing is they're going backwards. They're, they're always starting with Jesus and then they're going backwards. And that's, that's, I think a methodological problem. I think in light, in light of, uh, chronological, uh, chronological priority with regard to what comes first chronologically, you should go forward. So in other words, instead of saying, uh, Jesus died and the curtains torn in two and let's backtrack and look, uh, because the curtains torn in two, uh, the curtain in the tabernacle temple mirrors the, the angel at the garden of Eden. Okay. You go backwards that way, but if you go forward, I think it's actually m- more appropriate and methodologically more sound. So the garden of Eden, mankind is kicked out of the garden of Eden. The tabernacle temple is meant to reflect the garden of Eden in symbolism. I think, uh, there've been a lot of really good scholarly articles written on that. That is not something that's just held to by covenant theologians. A lot of people uh, note the correlations between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle temple concept. And so you do have this model uh, always in the world to remind you of, of the dwelling of God and where mankind is trying to approach God through that. And then so when Jesus dies on the cross, yes, the tearing of the curtain indicates that God or that mankind has access to the Almighty. Uh, that fellowship with God can be uh, restored in in that capacity, and so that that is a beautiful thematic, biblically sound connection to draw, right? But again, that's not that's not what we're disagreeing with. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with with doing biblical theology, but uh, the question is, is that what Genesis three means? Does Genesis three 
is Genesis 3, when you read Genesis 3, what did Moses write that in order to to signify to the people that the curtain would be torn in two when Jesus dies? Obviously not. And I know that they wouldn't say that either, but that's one of the questions we need to, we need to ask is what about authorial intent? Now, I do think that there are, there are many, many things that can be derived from the garden narrative, uh, the cherubim guarding the way to the presence of God, etc. I think that those, uh, there are plenty of things to be derived from the authorial intent in that passage, but I regularly will take that then and connect that to the tabernacle temple and say, well, look at the biblical theological connection later on Israel, it's revealed to Israel, the tabernacle design and it matches with what they read about with regard to the Garden of Eden. And so what they think, the average Israelite, is they say, well, look, the description of this matches with the Garden of Eden. Well, that can't be a coincidence. Uh, we understand then that there is this, uh, we are carrying around a symbol of God's presence in the tabernacle, in the temple. And so we are to treasure that, we're to, we're to assess that. And then ultimately, uh, like even mentioned earlier, when Jesus comes, John says, God tabernacles with humanity. And so then there's another connection saying, well, now instead of the tabernacle, we have Jesus, the Messiah in human form. He is, he is with us in presence, just like God was with the Israelites in presence in the old Testament. And so I think that we would agree on that. But again, I I would say, let's talk about some more difficult uh, illustrations. The, the way you make those connections, by the way, biblical theology is done through intertextuality, meaning you look for similar similarity in vocabulary, you look for similarities in theology, and so you make good biblical theo- theo- theological connections. And that that's sound, uh, a biblical approach, but that's different than, than saying, okay, Jesus is going to be everywhere, let's make a connection. Um, the methodology is different, and so they gave some examples where I think most people who would be critiquing the Christ-centered hermeneutic would actually say, you know, your connections aren't bad. Your methodology is just terrible. And so it's it's interesting because, you know, we would agree on pretty much 99% of those examples that you gave, but it just so happens that your methodology will also lead you to be incorrect on other passages, right? And so I think that that's, that's part of the problem is that there needs to be a assessment of other passages and show how, you know, e- truly every verse can point to Christ because you get to some of the verses in the old Testament and you say, well, does that, is that really designed to point to Christ? Is that the authorial intent? And I think that those, those things are, are important to talk about, but, but tricky. All right. They have uh, one more. We've, gone on forever on this. They have one more thing to say, a parting shot as it were. So I want to uh, give that to Justin here. All right. So this is his parting shot at 45.05. Yeah. I'm going to leave this as a parting shot. It's pretty strong before we transition over into our other mm-hmm. podcast for today. I'm confident that I, I don't impugn anybody's motivations. I trust everybody means well that, that raises these concerns that we've been talking about today or objects to long gospel or redemptive historical understandings of the Bible. I know they mean well, Mm -hmm. but with all due respect and humility, I'm confident that it is not the project of God to discourage the saints from seeing Christ in all of scripture. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's true. And I don't take my word for it. Even a man who's much more learned and respected than me. Just listen to what John Calvin says in his commentary on Colossians one, because he's dealing with, right. What's Paul writing to the Colossians about Mm -hmm. what's Paul really trying to accomplish in this letter. 
And his argument is that Paul is trying to give these saints the one thing that would protect them from false teaching and aberrant practice. And that is a clear view of the person and work of Christ. That's what Paul's doing in Colossians, says Calvin. I agree. Now, but listen to what he says, though, to the, the point of what we're talking about. Quote, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ, because he knows that by this means, the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood, close quote. <laughs> and Mike so dro- what, we're, what we're saying in agreeing with that and many saints through history is let us never obscure Christ from any portion of the scripture because it is a testimony about him. He is our hope. He is the atonement for our sins. He is our righteousness. He is our life. Let's not obscure him. Okay. So now I do have to point out here and I, I, you know, again, just want to say, I appreciate their passion for Christ and that that's so admirable. And I would just say it's, it's kind of ironic, right? That they, they preface the quote by Calvin giving the authorial context of the quote, right? So the assumption is that we understand in human communication that there's got to be a context of communication, right? So they say this is what Calvin is saying to about the communication between Paul to Colossae and they're dealing with false teaching. And so Calvin is arguing to the church at Colossians, to the church at Colossae, uh, that they, in obscuring Christ, you know, they, they open themselves up to false teaching, Right. That's what Calvin is saying. And then he immediately turns around and says, we are saying the exact same thing about all the Old Testament. So in other words, take what Calvin said and just apply it everywhere. Right now, would Calvin be OK with that if he was there? If he would, would, would he say, yes, it is completely appropriate that you take my commentary on Colossians and apply it to every passage in the Old Testament. Right. That's. Uh, if you don't see the major problem with that kind of hermeneutic, because ultimately that would be the charge or the assertion that I would make, uh, that that's what we're opening ourselves up to do is we're taking something, uh, a good theological truth, and we're trying to force it into other passages of scripture. And that's exactly the same thing as what they just did with John Calvin's quote, is that you take something that has a historical context within a human framework and you say, now we know that this can directly be applied to everything. And boom, you just throw it into all of scripture like that. Well, do we see the problem with that? You can't just take uh, communication like that and make it mean whatever you want, whenever you want to. And so that's what I would say. I'd say the what we need to do is have more discussion between the Christ-centered hermeneutic covenant theology people. And we need to actually examine passages of scripture and show why the methodology is so important there, right? And so I think that that would be more helpful. Uh, I think there's a lot of agreement that I would have with these two gentlemen with some of these passages, but the methodologies are so different um, that it's going to show up in other passages of Scripture. So I hope it's helpful to just kind of think through these things and assess them. Uh, I know it's, it's I think, helpful for me, at least, to, to see how others are interpreting Scripture and the kind of presuppositions that are being used. So keep that in mind is that hermeneutics is largely a presuppositional issue with the centerpiece being authorial intent. What relationship does authorial intent have to the meaning of a text? That is, that is the main hermeneutical question. Well, I hope this is helpful for you. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at petergaiman.com. You can also look at Shepherd's Theological Seminary and visit our website at shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.